0: Good morning. Good morning. Oh, cool, you're there. Hi, everyone. My name's Cody. Uh, it's good to be with you. Oh, thanks. Um, hey, uh, I have to make... A, <laughs> hi. I have to make a, a brief confession, but it's with the caveat that I've changed, okay? Just know that. So uh, Christmas, historically, for me, has not been my favorite season. Uh, and holidays, really, in general, and I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint many of you, but... Know that I've changed It's something that I've actually come to enjoy But in our first year of marriage um, Christmas, I discovered, was always a really hard time for me And holidays especially Because it was this reminder of my family's brokenness And so it was hard for me to kind of like Step into these deep and rich traditions That my wife had coming from her family And all those things just made it difficult for me And so I would kind of walk through the holidays kind of gloomy And like bummed out or apathetic So if that's you, know that I empathize (laughs) I get it, like I I was you But what's been really helpful for me uh, Is my lovely wife who's been uh, gracious and patient with me Um, But also for me to sort of spend the Like once I realize that those are the reasons why Christmas was difficult Or why I didn't enjoy these seasons It's been cool to refocus on, as cliche as it sounds The the true meaning of Christmas What we actually come to celebrate Because for me, it's easier for me to enjoy the fun parts When I really actually know that it's not about how I feel It's about Jesus And it's about his birth that we come to celebrate So, know that I empathize with you, and know that this season is not just about holiday fun and cheer, it's about Jesus. And we're going to talk about him today. Uh, We read uh, Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25, but we're not actually going to start there. We're going to start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Is that Mary Poppins? I have no idea. What is that? Yeah. My wife is shaking her head. I should have known that. Wow, I've been thinking all week, that I was working on that joke all week. And I definitely thought all week it was Mary Poppins Alright, okay, here we go We're starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 Which you might have read or you can read in your own Bibles That's a genealogy, just a list of names And uh, what I want to at least first say Is that Matthew didn't put this in the gospel for us to skip over It actually has quite a lot of significance And it means a lot, but for you and I, it doesn't mean much uh, it doesn't mean much because historically and culturally, who you ha- where you come from doesn't bear that much significance on what you do today. So most of us can remember our generations to, like, the great-grandparents, and that's about it. Some of you have gone on, like, Ancestry.com or other websites, and you've traced back where you've come from, but that doesn't bear much significance on what you do today. Um, In the time of Jesus, it actually had a pretty big significance for for a variety of people. To know where you come from sometimes dictated what you were allowed to do. There's a story in the book of Ezra, which is... um, which happens when the Israelites, they're in exile, and they get the permission to go back and rebuild the temple. And they're really excited, and all these people come together, and they're, they're rebuilding the temple, but they need people to serve as priests, people to serve as the ones who minister the elements and offer sacrifices and all this stuff. And these men come forward, and uh, we read this. We can read it on the screen. nope Yeah. So, also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakoz and the sons of... Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Giladi anyways, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in their genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. Thum, Thum. Okay, despite my brutal pronunciation of those names. What you see here in Ezra is that certain people couldn't prove their genealogy, couldn't prove their history to a certain degree, and so they were excluded from the service of being a priest. Um, And so we see, at least in a little way, that where you come from kind of matters in this culture, and that's not unique to Judaism, that's not unique to Hebrew culture. There's other cultures like the Maori, Maori? I'm really bad at pronouncing things. The Maori clans or tribesmen in New Zealand where like, where you come from is almost like tattooed on your legs, and it tells story, and all this different stuff. So those things are very important to other cultures, but just not important to ours. So the idea of why we would look at a genealogy is to say it mattered to them, and Matthew's trying to say something very important with that. So um, my mom was an English teacher, is an English teacher currently, and I remember being taught all throughout high school and junior high about how to write a great, solid essay, which means you start with a really good conclusion, really, (laughs) well, all right. Which means you start with a really great introduction, you have a body of your essay which is several paragraphs or whatever that's supposed to support your introduction and then a conclusion which is kind of the wrapping and summing up of your thoughts and ideas that that kind of pull from your introduction and pull from the body and you're making this point. If we take that sort of mindset of looking at this as a piece of literature, Matthew's doing the same thing. He starts with an introduction that's meant to set up what you're supposed to read throughout the entirety of his gospel, which means it's not okay for us to just skip it. I'm sorry, you can read through the names, but we're not allowed to just skip it because it's important. He put it there for a reason. Uh, The gospel of Luke has a genealogy, and it's a little different, but he puts it in chapter three, and Matthew puts it, this very first thing he says. So when you compare those together, you, you have to think, okay, if Luke put this in chapter three, then. And he was trying to use that understanding for a different reason. But Matthew puts it in the very beginning. So it's got to be important. It must mean something than, other than just a list of names. Um, and what Matthew is trying to set up and say is that his gospel his gospel is about what's behind Jesus and what we're given in Jesus. His gospel is meant to explain to us what we are given in the person of Jesus. And he does this with the genealogy and then some other stuff. Um, but really quickly, we're going to look at the content We're going to look at some of the structure, which will involve some math. But I must warn you, relevance will happen later. So bear with me. We'll get through this. It's not all boring. I find it fascinating. But if you're not like me, that's okay. We'll go through this just to get some of the significance and uh, hold on. Okay. So in the very beginning of the genealogy, we have the name Abraham. Abraham. We have the name Abraham, and for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, that should bring up some significance. Abraham's a pretty important guy in the Old Testament. Uh, but Abraham was promised, this he, he made this covenant with God, and God said some really interesting things about him. And he said this in Genesis 12, one through 3, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So basically, God promises Abraham that his descendants will be a blessing to the nations. Now, you look in the entirety of the Old Testament history, you see Israel just kind of failing at that, at being a blessing to the nations. And so Matthew is trying to make the case that the fulfillment of that blessing to the nations is with what's at the end of this genealogy, which is Jesus the Messiah. So Jesus is going to fulfill the blessing to the nation, bring about blessing to the nations. Then there's this person Judah, and Judah is one of the sons of Israel, who was Jacob. His name changed to Israel. He's one of the sons. And right when uh, Jacob was dying, he pronounced this blessing over his sons. And this is what he said to them. And this blessing sort of had some bearing on what they would do and what, was going to be like, what they were going to be like. And he said this in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Matthew's trying to say, hey, listen, this person, Jesus, at the end of this genealogy is related to Judah, and Judah was promised that ruling and power and authority would come through his line. And so he's already trying to build the case for his solid like, credibility as a king. And then we see this person, uh, Jesse, is in there. And in Isaiah 11-1-2, It says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might and the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord will rest upon him. And so he's building the case that there's Jesse and this thing was said about Jesse that someone's going to come from the line of Jesse and they're going to have these qualities and attributes. And so Matthew, without saying all of those things, just puts names in there. And if you're you're familiar with the Hebrew text, if you were a Hebrew in this time, all these things would have been bringing up being brought to your imagination being brought to your mind and then lastly one of the most important people we have there is David so he's in the line of David now in 2 Samuel 7 12-13 it says this now I know some of you are probably trying to flip to get to where I'm going that's okay you can just write down the reference look it up later it's on the screen anyways it says this in Second Samuel, "When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." Now part of this was speaking about David's son Solomon, but Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever. And so what a lot of people believe is that this was actually talking about the promised Messiah who would be from the line of David, who would fulfill sort of everything that God was promised and his kingdom would last forever forever. So the genealogy is important in that it establishes credibility for Jesus. It establishes credibility by fulfilling multiple prophecies about what the Messiah will be like by showing he's in the right line. He has the credibility for what he's going to do. But there's also some other really fun things that happen. I say fun. I don't know if you like them. This part involves math. Okay, some fun things that happen. So if you look at the genealogy in the book of Luke, uh, it's very different from this. Um, it's a little bit longer, it has names that aren't included, and that's fine, that's, that's, that's okay, there are different relatives that you can sort of trace lineage through. But Matthew sets it up in a very unique way, it's three sets of 14. Now, for you and I, that probably doesn't mean much, um, but can someone tell me, just yell it out, what's, um, what's Kobe Bryant's number? 24? What's Michael Jordan's number? 23, right? So if you were in a context in which you were talking about sports And someone said 23 You would immediately be thinking Which one was it? I don't remember I'm not into sports (laughs) Uh, Michael Michael Jordan, right? So, like, there's a number kind of attached with that person and that image and that, and that idea. And so the same thing is true um, one of the interesting things that happens in the Hebrew alphabet and language, there are sort of numerical values associated with the alphabet. And so if you add up the numerical values for David, it's 14. And so, if you're a pro- you Hebrew in that time, you're thinking three sets of 14, you're immediately thinking of David, you're immediately thinking of the kingdom that was probably the best that Israel had, had ever had. You're immediately thinking of these things. Now, Before we get too far into that, I want to bring about this, I want to do some math, okay? So, 14 divided by 2 is 7, and 3 times 2 is 6. So, there are 3 sets of 14, or in another way, 6 sets of 7. And that might not mean much, but in the, in the scriptures, numbers are kind of significant. Sometimes they mean a lot, sometimes they don't mean anything. Um, but if you, for example, take the 12 disciples, the 12, that number 12 is meant to sort of mirror this idea that God had Israel, which was made up of 12 tribes. And so numbers can bear significance. But in this, we see the number 7 being significant. And the reason is because God um, had set up... Uh, what's called the Sabbath, which is every seven days they would rest. Um, in the book of Exodus, 28 through 11, it says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to, you, to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For the six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So every seven days, they were meant to take a Sabbath, which is to rest from all the work that they were doing. But furthermore, God instituted what's called a Sabbath year, which is really similar to the, to the seven-day rest. But every seven years, the land would rest. It says this in Leviticus 25, 1-5. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, and the land shall, the land shall keep the Sabbath to the Lord, For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed wine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. And God promises them that in the sixth year he will produce an abundance of food to kind of get them through this seventh year. But he institutes this idea that every, every kind of like seven years and seven days there, there's a resting period. And it's cool that kind of built in the community life and the structure, God has instituted this thing to help them remember that God made them, that God created them, they're made in his image. And after all God did, he rested. It kind of, you can't go a week without remembering that God did something. This is the kind of the cool thing that he set up. But on top of that, Later on, he, further down in Leviticus 25, he sets and institutes up something called the Jubilee year, or year of Jubilee. The Lord spoke to Moses. Well, oh, I got to read it here. I forgot. That's the wrong one. Uh, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of, of years shall give you 49 years. And then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seven month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all of your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So... The Jubilee year was instituted by God that every 49 years on the start of the 50th year would be a year of Jubilee, year of celebration, year of restoration. Captives would be set free. If you owed a debt to someone, your debt would be canceled at that time. If you had sold land in that period of time, at the end of that time, land would revert back to you. The whole structure is kind of set up like you couldn't take out a loan. Like if you were taking out a loan or, or selling your property, like it was worth however much time was left in the Jubilee. And so it kind of brought about this idea that every 49 years there would be this time of great peace, great restoration, harmony. And this is kind of this beautiful thing. So, back to the genealogy. Back to the genealogy. There are three sets of 14, six sets of seven. Jesus' name is the conclusion to the sixth set and the start of the seventh. Which Matthew's trying to make the case that what Jesus is doing is bringing about a jubilee of jubilees, sort of this great opportunity of freedom and restoration, and all these things are coming with Jesus. So he's not simply just saying, look at Jesus' credibility. He's saying Jesus is the promised Messiah and the promised King who will bring about the blessing to the nations that was promised through Abraham. The fulfillment of all that's happening in Jesus, and what it's going to look like is like a jubilee, but more than you can ever imagine. One thing that's been helpful for me to kind of picture this or at least get get my mind around this is to um, think about a moment in which I felt um, great joy and great peace. And for me, that moment was uh, about a year ago, I was, my wife and I were babysitting my niece and nephew, and we've gotten in this habit where like when they come over, we just dance. So we're in our kitchen, and we have the little Amazon Alexa, and he really likes, I think we were dancing too, he likes Ninja Turtles, there's like this song called Shell Shocked, and we're dancing, and so my wife is holding my niece, and she's, she's like laughing, and we're spinning around, and he's dancing in the kitchen, and it was this beautiful moment of, that year was kind of crazy for us, and it's this beautiful moment of in the midst of chaos, there was peace, and joy and harmony. And that feeling that I have kind of helps remind me of, of what this Jubilee might be like. The sense that everything is right in the world, that God is working and there isn't just darkness around us. What God is doing is actually really amazing. And for me, that imagery is really helpful to see that the, what the Jubilee year, what Matthew is saying Jesus is going to be bringing, what Matthew is saying the work of Jesus will do, is bring about full and complete restoration and peace to the land and to the people. It's kind of a big deal to say that with just the structure and just a few names of some people. And what he appears to say, just to summarize, is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah from the kingly line of David, who who will be the descendant who is a blessing to all nations and will bring about a great jubilee. All that in a list of names and the way that you structure it. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute. But now we're going to talk about uh, Mary and Joseph, which is what we read earlier. So the point of that being to look at what God is giving us, to look at what God is giving the world. Now, we've been talking in this series uh, called Given with this idea that God gave his son to us, and in some sense there's there's a way in which we are asked to kind of give in conjunction with that giving. And we're looking at the story of Mary and Joseph because Mary and Joseph gave something. Um, We read in the story... I'll find it. Give me a minute. This is what happens when I don't mark my Bible. Oh, too far. There we go. Nope. And this is embarrassing. Got it. Okay, we're reading the story. Um, that the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been... Be- Betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly, quietly. So. In this culture, uh, it's, their betrothal is not like our engagement. So my wife and I got engaged. We were engaged for nine months. We lived both at our parents' house. We didn't live together. Um, and it was engagement. Like we could have broken that off at any moment, moment and there wouldn't have been any consequences. Betrothal in, this, in the Hebrew culture was if you were betrothed to someone, it was considered legally binding. The only difference is that you, there was a period of time before you, were considered, before you considered married and living together that you didn't live together. But for all purposes here, Mary and Joseph are husband and wife. And to break that would be issuing her a certificate of divorce. So that's why it says he had to divorce her, because that was a binding kind of contract, and they didn't live together. So you can imagine, Mary doesn't live with Joseph, and she comes to him and says, Hey, Joseph, I'm pregnant. And he's like, Great. And she's like, No, it's cool. It's from the Holy Spirit. And he's like, Cool. I don't believe you. <laughs> because that's what happens. He, didn't, he doesn't believe her. And he says, Okay, well, thank you for telling me, my, telling me that. I'm going to go ahead and divorce you anyways. And he's a nice guy. He says in the text he's a righteous man, so he doesn't want to publicly shame her, which he had every right to do. If, if it was indeed what he thought it was, that means she had cheated on him and broke the kind of vow and relationship that they had. And so he had the legal standing and right to bring her out in front of the community and to publicly shame her and divorce her. And there's also some weird financial uh, incentive for that that he could have had. So if you, you pay a bride price in order to receive a bride and then you get a dowry when you guys marry together... He lived together, so he would have been given back his bride price that he paid. And he also would have been given her dowry, which is like double the money and you can start over and get married again. So there's some weird financial incentive to maybe do that. But Joseph's not interested in that. He's a righteous person, a nice guy, and he decides to divorce her quietly. And while he's thinking about this, this is something that he's wrestling with. An angel comes to him and says, Hey, listen, your wife, Mary, what she's saying is actually true. And so what we need you to do, what God wants you to do is to not be afraid to take her as your wife, to take her into your home. So Joseph listens and obeys and he takes Mary into her home. And the thing that we want to point to here, at least highlight in the text, is that Joseph responded to what God had asked him to do with obedience. With obedience. In light of all that God had given him, and he didn't even have the full picture of what we saw in the the genealogy. He just knew the Messiah was coming and it was supposed to be this baby that was coming from his wife. In light of all of that, he believed God and responded in obedience, and I think that's really important. And the reason I think that's really important is because obedience is not something that's very easy to do. So let's go back really quickly to the genealogy. In the book of John, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, To all who have believed, or to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God children of God. So those of us who have put our faith and believe in Jesus, we are now considered and called children of God. Which means, in a sense, we are brought into the genealogy of Christ and receive the fulfillment of what God has done through his son Jesus. We get brought into that story. Um, But what often happens, um, or what can happen, it's different seasons or with different people, is that rather than recognizing that you were brought into the story of Christ, you stand firm and you want Christ to just jump onto what your story is already. To jump onto your life and you just kind of slap a Jesus sticker on whatever you're doing and hope that God blesses it. And that is not, that is not the life of a Christian. We are not called to just do whatever we want and come to God and pray to God when we want things. Because that creates this kind of weird, uh, like God becomes a sort of uh, vending machine where like if we just press the right numbers and give the right money, then we'll get what we want. That's not being obedient to what God has. So the idea is that you get brought into his story, and then you submit to his will and his direction for your life. And that's kind of tough to do. Um, personally, I, I remember feeling this way when I was in college. So some of you know this, but I went to California Baptist University, great school, uh, out in Riverside, and I actually, my degree's not ministry, my degree's in biology. So I have, a grad, I have an undergraduate degree in biology because I went to school to become a doctor. That was what I wanted to do. Now, There were all sorts of reasons behind why I wanted to do that. And what God revealed to me sort of in my junior year was that that path was one that I was trying to just invite God into my own story and slap a Jesus sticker on what I wanted to do. So I was like, yeah, yeah I'll be a doctor. I'll make a lot of money. People will think really highly of me, but I'll, I'll do medical missions trips or, or maybe it will like one day down the road when I have enough money and I'm comfortable, we'll, we'll go live overseas and, and help people and heal them that way. And so it was this story that I had crafted and created about what my life would look like and how it was supposed to be. And I was going to be comfortable and I was going to be rich and I was going to be respected and Jesus was going to be right there too, kind of. And I'd be like, look, him. so it was all about me in that moment and what God kind of revealed to me was kind of the, the disgusting nature of my pride I remember very clearly thinking that I loved meeting my parents friends and shaking their hand and telling them what I was doing and like watching and looking for their sense of approval and it's just this weird thing of God showing me like you like that more than you want to submit and ask, what, submit and ask me what you should do with your life you like the approval of other people rather than what I would have you do and it's this cool process where God began to kind of change and transform um, the direction of my life. Um, and I went, I followed, but it took a while. Um, yeah, he, he changed the direction of my life. And this isn't to say that The path that you're pursuing, if it's not ministry, you need to you need to like change and make sure that you become a minister because that's not the thing. Everyone is called to ministry. Vocational ministry is different. Our role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and so it's it is to say, in whatever you do, you need to seek out and rely on God and ask Him what He would have you do with your life and submit to His will versus your own. And this isn't an easy thing to do. Um, It's actually really difficult if you think about hearing from God. How do I hear from God? How do I know what his will is for my life? And there are all sorts of answers to those questions. But what I've seen really... What I've seen in my life is that God has already spoken. God has given us his word and he's spoken. And that is is the fullness of what he said. Now when we talk about hearing from God or responding to different situations, what we need to do is become a people who are immersed in those words. So... At my, at my house, we have this air conditioning unit and it's, it's on the back of the house. We have, live in an apartment and it, it sticks out from the wall and it drips water. And in, our, in, our, in the summertime, it's like dirt. There's nothing that's growing back there because our landlords don't pay for it to be watered and nobody really cares and our dog poops out there. So it's whatever. So it just drips dirt. Er, wait. Just drips water on the ground. But this really cool thing happens that because that's the one spot where water drips, it's where this, the, the grass that's underneath it is still able to grow because it's clinging to that source of water and that source of life. It's sort of, you can see it around the house where there's just an edge of green grass that grows around, around the house. And it's this idea, as I was thinking about it, it's this idea that we would be so consumed and so invested and so deeply impacted by the necessity of God's word that we would cling to it like it had the direction for our lives. Because it does. And that sounds like a cheesy, like, okay, well, if you want to figure out what God wants to do, just read your Bible But it's this idea that God has spoken already And we can't pretend to know what God would have for us if we don't spend time listening to what he has to say Jesus said that his sheep will know his voice So we teach this a lot with our junior hires. How can you know his voice if you've never picked up his word? Because in those moments, God will bring to mind things that are in character with what he said before or actual verses and things of of what you should be doing. And I found that to be true in my own life. And so if there's any encouragement, it's to say how we respond in obedience to God in light of what he's given us is we immerse ourselves in his word and study as if the words that he had were actually essential and necessary for our life. There's another thing that happens there's another thing that happens is when, you be, when you're obedient to someone It means you do what they say um, And I was, I was thinking about this It's kind of interesting because I have this friend, we went surfing once And it was a whole crew of people who were going surfing And they all said like He, he was like, I'm going to be there And then no, I'm not going to make it And then he shows up, he meets us at the beach And we're all there and he's surfing with us And we're like, oh, I thought you said you weren't going to go And he's like, yeah, well, I was, I was asking God And he said I had to go So, so I'm here And I remember being really, in that moment, being really struck. Because I thought, you asked God if you should go surfing today. And you felt a response from him, and so you were obedient to that call. And as silly as that that moment is, it was really beautiful because I think... I didn't ask God like, what I should wear to work today. Like, I don't do those types of things. But what would it look like if we became a people who in every sense we wanted to be humble and obedient to the Lord, that we asked him what he, sh- what he would have us do in every situation. I love the picture of someone who would get up and say, okay, what, what do you want me to do today? Apart from my own will and my own desires, I submit because you've grafted me into your family. Not, I, not I'm slapping a sticker of Jesus onto my own life and asking you to bless the things that I do. God, what would you have me do? This really interesting balance. So, for Joseph and Mary, what they did, uh, their obedience to the Lord cost them something. It had a cost with it. My wife, um, in her Bible that she's had since, since she was in junior high, it's uh, in her home, in the Luke account, has scribbled in, the, I was reading it the other day, and has scribbled in uh, that... A yes to Jesus is expensive. I remember like I read that yesterday on Friday, and I thought, I have, to, I have to remember that. I have to remember that, because a yes to Jesus is expensive. It will cost you something. And the cost is your life it's really easy to operate and pretend to be a Christian that just wants God to bless the things that you're always doing. It's a lot harder to be obedient and to submit to what God would have you do. It can cost you relationships. It can cause you status. It can cause you your reputation. In fact, for Mary and Joseph, that would have been an implication on their reputation. there are some interesting views on what it would have meant for them uh, outside of just the birth of Jesus. But you can imagine, if Mary, Mary and Joseph were in this tight-knit community, most likely, and someone found out, at least their parents had found out, that uh, Mary was pregnant and it wasn't Joseph's baby, that rumors would have began to circulate. Something would have been, they would have said, oh, well, that's, that's Jesus, that's Mary's son. Maybe Joseph's. I don't know. They'd do all these things. But... Things like that stick with you the rest of your life. Um, and to prove that things stick with you, I have this great picture I'd like to show you. That's me. Does that help? Okay, so when I was, this is me as a baby, and as you can see I was uh, shapely. And I was a chubby baby, and I had this, there's this story that I, I don't remember it. But it was told to me when I was like two, we were all having dinner and my parents, um, parents were around the table and I was standing up in my high chair and my dad yelled, sit down, fat boy. And for some reason, I responded, I'm not fat boy. And I said, I Fashix, which is my chubby version of fat cheeks. And so everyone in my family has like this childhood nickname and Fashix is mine. So like my sister and brothers, like there's five of us, like I'm Fashix. And I'm 26 years old, and that small little tiny story, this like 30 second moment, has followed me all throughout my life. And that's just within my family. So, just, just there, like now you know, so there you go. So, that's just within my family. But you can imagine for Joseph and Mary, like even if it was that, like if there was always the suspicion of, of the, 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 the sanctity of their marriage and, and what God was doing with them, that, like that follows you and has an impact on you. Like, I will, that comes up in therapy all the time for me. So, uh, there's a cost that came with it. But they considered the cost of what Jesus was offering them, and they responded with obedience. Um, And I would say that that same invitation for what we can give in response to God giving us his son, and recognizing the gift that his son... See, Mary and Joseph didn't necessarily see the genealogy and the ways in which Matthew wanted to present Jesus and what he was, but they recognized that what God was doing was, was awesome, and they were obedient to him. So our giving in conjunction with what God has given us, which is amazing, his son, the promised king who will bring about the jubilee, who has done that with his life, is to respond in obedience and to seek God's will. I want to end our time uh, reading Psalm 23 over you because Psalm 23 is David's writing. He's a shepherd who describes God as his shepherd. And the thing about sheep, which some of you might know, is they're really, really stupid. Sheep are dumb. <laughs> like, they're easily attacked. If they eat too much, they'll, if they fall over, like, they can't get back up, and, like, they'll die from that. And they're smelly, and they're just, they're, they're so dependent on their shepherd. There's a book called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, which is by this guy from South Africa who was a shepherd for dozens of years. And he writes just about how crazy it is that the sheep need, his shep- need the shepherd. And they can't survive without him. And there's a dependency there that I think we all need to, to become people who are dependent and seeking out the shepherd's guidance for our lives rather than being dependent on ourselves. So I want to read this over you just as a way of, um, as a way of getting our mindsets. This, this would be a wonderful prayer to start with any, every morning, to submit ourselves to the will of God and say, God, whatever I would have for my day, I would rather it be what you have for my day. Um, so turn, you can uh, close your eyes as I read this over you. We'll end with this. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.